We made it to 200, 200 episodes here on Specialty Stories, session number 200. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I am excited that you are here for episode 200. What a milestone here, helping share different specialties out in the world for you, the aspiring physician, to figure out what you want to do as a career. Today, I have a great guest, an MD, PhD, who practices molecular pathology. And we're going to talk all about her path to molecular pathology right now, about why she chose the MD, PhD route, why, quote, just MDs may have a little bit more of a disadvantage in this specific field because of all that background knowledge that she's bringing to the table with the PhD. We, we talk about so many things about molecular pathology, including what she likes, what she doesn't like, and more. Today, we're talking to Dr. Vera Paulson, a physician, again, a molecular pathologist who's been out of training now for four years. We start the conversation by finding out how Dr. Paulson first became interested in molecular pathology. It's sort of a long story, and I think a lot of people, I, I can synopse, but um, I knew around 10 years of age when my mom was sick with breast cancer that I was interested in curing cancer. At least that's what I told her I was going to do. A bit ambitious, you know, as all 10-year-olds are. Um, and it was my high school biology class and I can even remember the teacher's name and, and we were doing Punnett squares and I thought this is really cool. And she told me that I needed to be a genetics major in college. And so seemed to make sense to me. That's what I did. And my first year of college was uh, 2011. So you can imagine it was kind of a, sorry, 2001. <laughs> Gee, it seems like I'm not, I, I keep thinking I'm 20 and I'm not 20, but it, it was 2001. And um, I remember my genetics professor standing up at the front of the classroom that day. And um, he said, "I, you know, you can come talk to me about anything. He's like, maybe you have a parent who's having brain surgery. And I just went out the night before my mom needed brain surgery. And it began a relationship with this person um, because I went down and talked to him. Of course, I'm a freshman in college and, and all of this is new. And we stayed in close touch to the point where he used to slide MD, PhD applications under the lab the door that I worked in as an undergrad. And I would put them back under his door because I wanted to be a PhD and not an MD, PhD. And um, the last time he slid one under the door, he, he sent it under with the story of Gleevec and this whole bench to bedside and how we could find this targeted, targetable alteration and virtually cure cancer with a pill a day. And I thought, oh, he's right. <laughs> and it was after MCAT. This is back when, you know, MCAT was August and April. And so, of course, I've come to this conclusion in May. And he said, um, you, you're not taking any of the classes that are going to be on the MCAT. Don't be, you know, disappointed if you don't score well. Just, just go for it and apply blind. And so that's what I did. And Throughout my my work is in the PhD lab, I was working with pediatric um, oncologists and and molecular 
pathology people and pediatric path and, and all of that group. And I just, I loved it. It was so much fun. And throughout anatomic pathology residency, and I chose my residency based on the fact that they had a peds path fellowship and a molecular fellowship. And everyone kept saying I was going to change my mind and I never changed my mind. It was just, it was home. It was, I understood it in a way that um, I didn't understand other things, I guess. And uh and just loved every step of it. And so that's what I get to do now. I'm, I'm seeing tumors and sometimes I get to find things that help them with the diagnosis. And I love the people I work with. And um, it's just been a really, a really fun experience and, and humbling at the same time. And um, you really feel great too when you, when you solve the unsolvable. The, the, uh, the doctor house of the group solving the unsolvable. <laughs> it does feel, I, it does feel like that a bit. And actually I'm, um, I've started a, a training curriculum for all of our, our residents coming through because, you know, people aren't exposed to molecular very much depending on where they do their, um, med school even and, and residency. And mm-hmm. so when they come on as, um, CP, so clinical pathology residents, I actually have created 10 cases that start out with very basic, here's what you're looking for in melanoma. Uh, And the last diagnosis is for them to understand that sometimes you're not given the right information. And so when they get to it, they're like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense (laughs) in the context of the diagnosis. And I'm like, you passed, you know, you graduated, you now know how to do this correlation between what you see on the slide and what you're seeing in the DNA level. Interesting. So b- before we go any further, let's define for the students who, who know what pathology is and they, they love reading books from Dr. Judy Melanick about forensic pathology. They know that kind of stuff. And then they hear oh, yeah. molecular pathology. What is that? Let's define it before we go any further. Molecular pathology can mean a lot of different things, and it depends, again, on where you train. Uh, It's basically this idea that you're looking at the nucleic acids, right? Uh, I think that's probably the broadest definition I can give. So DNA or RNA, depending on what you're looking at, it can be germline, it can be somatic, it can be microbial, which is not (laughs) something I I specialize in. Um, But anything that's sort of dealing with the, the, you know, building blocks of, of protein. So kind of, uh, and I know you said, don't, don't bring up COVID, but the, <laughs> the molecular building blocks, would that be, are there molecular pathologists who are out there going, this is Delta, this is Lambda, this is a new one. We haven't seen this before. Are those molecular pathologists that are going to be doing that? Yeah, I think so. And or some combination of like infectious disease, because obviously molecular gets integrated into a lot of different areas. And so it's not always someone that's per se gone through the training that I have. And actually, I'm also an anomaly because most people that do molecular go through clinical pathology training. But I'm AP board certified and and, um, the molecular kind of crosses uh, both sides. It's sort of similar to heme path in that way where it's a bit AP and a bit CP, depending on how you come to it. Okay. Very interesting. So you but, may, go ahead. Well, I was going to say the person who developed the test that we're, we're um, using is more on the PhD side, but came through it as a CP and, and does some of the molecular. So okay, we get to hear little bits and pieces. <laughs> Out there saving the world. One, one test at a time. One so test at a time. Y- you mentioned earlier that you just, it, it feels like home for you. It felt like a fit, like nothing else for you. And, I think everyone wants that in their life. How did you find that? What what was it that just made you feel like this was this was home? 
you know, it was really funny and it took me a long time. And, and I'll mention to, to anybody that's going through training because it, I knew I liked molecular, but I don't think I understood to the degree and um, had done all this anatomic pathology training and kept thinking I have to use it. I have to use it. And I've done PEDS path. I have to use it. Um, it's sort of almost a sunk cost fallacy to where I, my first job that I took and it didn't last, I think three or four months in, I, I decided this really wasn't for me was a combination of molecular and anatomic. And I realized what I was loving about the PEDS path on the anatomic side was how much of it had to deal with genetics, that correlation, that understanding of, I don't have to memorize all these disparate symptoms and, and signs of a syndrome. I could look at something and say like, oh, polycythemia vera has this mutation and this mutation means the cells don't need erythropoietin because they're able to keep dividing. And so these are all of the, the you know, consequences of that. It just, it was so beautifully eloquent and it was how my brain was wired. Um, I think, I like to think that people know it when they hit it. If you're sitting in a class and you're looking at the slides and you just think this is like the coolest thing ever <laughs> and it's so interesting and, and it doesn't mean you hate patients. I don't know if you've heard the whole like, yeah. You know, how do you tell the difference between an introverted and extroverted pathologist? The extrovert looks at your shoes instead of his. <laughs> um, I actually really loved patients and I thought about peds hemonc, but for me, I guess the bottom line was, did I want to be the person walking into the room and delivering this horrible news about you have cancer and, you know, we're going to try chemo? Or did I want to be the person finding the targets that, that changed how we treated a patient? And, and I wanted to be that person. Yeah. Looking back on your life, as you got to this point, could you see that sort of passion in other places? Like, did you play with Lego a ton, like finding all the building blocks and creating these things? Or is just just something special about as you went through the medical training that you found it? Yeah, no, I was I totally played with Legos all the time. I was always interested in, in you know, putting things together and taking them apart, probably much to my parents. <laughs> um and then the books that I read, you know, just devour it. Um, the Emperor of All Maladies, I remember reading and uh, talks about cancer and how treatment evolved. And um, like I said, Mendel and, and just so interested in biology and so interested in science. I did, you know, science fair all through yeah. high school and was always presenting things. Um, but yeah, it was really just sitting in those genetics classes, talking to professors about what it was. And it being able to go in and ask questions and have people that were authorities in their field and, and learn from it. Yeah. Are, are there specific traits that you see among your colleagues that, that make them make you a great molecular pathologist? You have to be extremely detail oriented. I mean, just um, when you think about it, right, you're looking at G's and A's to C's and T's and, and positions and numbers and transcripts and um, thoughtful about the data that you're reviewing and the databases you're using and, and understanding who's able to put what data uh, into that. And, um, you know, because you're changing somebody's life, right? You don't want to say that this is an actionable mutation that may not respond to drugs. You don't want to tell someone they have leave from any if they don't, right? Like a, a mutation in P53. So just being um, extremely detail oriented and then understanding all of the, the things that can impact the tests that are, are performed and um, highly suspicious when you don't find things. You know, I have cases where I'll sit there and, and I have a really good hit rate where my test is negative, but I just have this feeling uh, because I know what should be found 
um, what it is that we're likely to be missing and, and then pursuing that down other avenues. Or if I don't have an explanation, I'm, I'm relentless in it uh, through all the databases. And um, I like to say if I have a 90-10 mix, 90 bread and butter, 10, super interesting, that's a good um, good mix because that one case uh, can take me a week sometimes or more to sort out where these are cases you're usually trying to turn over within the week. And, and if I don't have an answer or I have something unusual, I'll hang on to it and pursue it or I'll come back to it. So tenacity. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about for, for yourself, knowing that you didn't want to be the one giving the bad news, but, but more on the, the kind of behind the scenes working on potentially bigger, bigger things. How much interaction, if any, do you have with patients? It's, it is limited. We do occasionally get emails from, um, from patients where they're asking more questions about their data, but a lot of that interface is through genetic counselors and through the oncologist who's asking for more information. Um, on rare instances, we've actually had people who also specialized in molecular asking questions about their molecular data because they know what to ask. But generally, um, we're sort of referred to as the doctor's doctor. So we, we are the consultants for a lot of other people. And I think pathology really didn't have a great face until maybe some more of the um, uh, shows on TV and or with COVID has moved us a bit to the forefront where people understand that there is a specialty that designs these tests. Um, yeah. For for students who and residents and everyone else who hear, uh, or maybe more for students who hear like charting, charting and this non-patient care admin stuff is the bane of medicine. Is pathology kind of saved from that world? No, we get a lot of admin too. <laughs> I, I kept trying to draw lines in the sand where, okay, I'm validating all the tests and doing all these other things. So I'm going to try to stay out of the middle of the billing questions because it's not my area of expertise. And, and slowly but surely I'm having to to learn um, because I get consulted by our GCs. Insurance won't cover this. What can I do instead? How do we do this? How do I, you know, what test do I put it on that I can get covered? Um, and I, I have to know the answers to that. CPT codes, you know. Yeah. So yes. <laughs> never, it never ends. <laughs> it never ends. And then you have staff you're managing too, right? So yeah. um, a lot of admin comes from that as well. Yeah. What does a typical day look like for you? Um, I'm a little bit of everything. So it's kind of interesting. All the tests that we run range from germline to cancer. And then as part of the cancer testing, we also have tissue selection. So I get to put my anatomic skills to good use where, um, I probably will have, I mean, I might be physically in house from nine to seven, but I'll go home and be on emails and working on research papers and putting together things for, for teaching. So I, it's pretty busy. Um, but yeah, so I'll come in at nine. I'll look at all the cases that are upstairs. I actually circle the tissue on the slides that we're going to test. Somatic data comes out. I'm looking at that and signing out my cases. Um, or if I'm on germline service, I'm looking at, you know, things like cystic fibrosis or pregnancy screenings to see what's going on in, in mom and fetus. And every day is a little bit different. I never have a, a standard schedule. <laughs> nice. What does call look like for you? It doesn't exist. <laughs> we'll get emails. I mean, residents will call us if they have a genetics question, but there's not in the traditional sense that I have to worry about someone phoning me up at two in the morning and asking for, you know, a result or how to send a test. Um, 
the the only really odd hour calls I've gotten is, you know, one of our staff has accidentally cut themselves with a scalpel. What do they do next? <laughs> <laughs> That's um, fun. So it's really nice. I, my pager is gone. They all call my phone. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's no stat labs or anything testing for like a, a newborn in the middle of the night who may have some sort of um, genetic issue? Um, those kinds of tests. So, I mean, there are in a way that there are stat tests. So like lung cancer is one that comes to mind where you absolutely have to have the result before you can start chemotherapy. But the problem is when you run a molecular test, the assay starts Monday. <laughs> so the result comes out at the end of the week because it's yeah. a test that takes, you know, five days to prep and you can call me on Thursday night and want to rush something and I'll, I'll cut it and make sure, try to get it to the, the next Monday run, but there's not a result that's going to come out that I can magically foretell for you. But that's not um, how it works on TV. I know it's really, <laughs> I, I love it. I, I sit there with my spouse and we're watching house and I'm like, yeah, that's not how that works. <laughs> uh, and he just laughs. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we had to stop watching house cause my, my wife would just yell at, at, at house and, and all the other medical shows. She's like, that's not how it works. I'm like, just stop, just stop. It's supposed to be fun. <sighs> anyway. it, you know, if you can kind of disconnect certain parts of your brain and just like watch the story and I'm always going, okay, well the symptoms are this. So I wonder what it could be. And even if it's not quite right, like you're, you're creating your differential. We used to count it as studying in med school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Gray's anatomy that started when I started med school. So that was, that was a fun yeah, one to was- watch. So we started about the same time then because Grey's Anatomy was like 2005-ish. Five, yeah. I started med school in 2005. Yeah, that's when I started. Yeah. Yes, good times. Um, so Denny didn't get beta blockers. <laughs> what is what does the, the training path look like to, to get to become you? Yeah, so you can do it a couple of different directions. I um, My training path was the MD and the PhD followed by a pathology residency, I chose to get out a little bit quicker because already I'd had a longer, um, the permanently in school plan, I'd had a longer uh, path, right, to get there. So then I did the three years of residency, one year of PEDS path fellowship, another year of PEDS, uh, the molecular fellowship. And then I could finally go out and get a job at 35. Um, other people <laughs> come through on the PhD route, like ABMGG, don't ask too many questions about that but um you know they get jobs when they're 30 so there's there's a little bit of a quicker route but it just um it kind of depends on what you're wanting to do obviously that person wouldn't know all of the the intricacies of the human body and wouldn't be doing tumor selection on slides but they can do variant interpretation um very well and and we all collaborate across um, degrees basically so i'll go ask my phd colleagues to look at things and my other md and md phd colleagues and we have consensus conference at least once a week um, where we all look at the data and ask each other questions because everyone has niches of knowledge um, that can uh, save time and, and um, assist. Yeah. One of the biggest questions that pre-meds have as they're trying to figure out what they want to do for their, their life is, do I need a PhD? Do I not need a PhD? Looking at potentially your quote unquote MD only or DO only colleagues, are they limited in what they can do compared to you? Or is it just really, as you just mentioned, just a little bit of a different set of knowledge that either you have colleagues that you can lean on or you learn it over time? Um, I think you can learn it over time, but it is definitely rougher for someone to come in on the, the genetic side where I have people who have come through as an MD only, um, 
if they haven't been exposed to molecular in the program they're in or, or you know, done a research project, they don't know the language. So if I say codon or I say cis and trans and um, I, I just, you know, when I train those CP1s, we start on a different level of, of knowledge. So the PhD definitely helped me get to where I am and made it an easier go, but it, it's doable as an MD or DO as well. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Depends on the week. Um, but I do, I do make a, um, I try to prioritize having some, some downtime. You know, we, we laugh. I love teaching so much that I keep volunteering to do all these <laughs> different teaching things. And then I wind up figuring out that I'm like lecturing in <laughs> five or six different classes and they're all hitting at the same time. Um, but but yeah, no, my, I, one of the big reasons, cause I'm from Texas originally and then moved to Boston, I was looking for work-life balance. And so I call Seattle my happy medium. Nice. Very cool. Uh, happy medium that now has the heat of Texas and the, uh, the and overcast the of Boston. Boston. <laughs> yes. We had like, uh, several feet this last year too. And then it went from several feet of snow that had covered my rhododendrons to then like 113 that burned my rhododendrons. So I'm like gauging weather by how my plants are doing in the backyard. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fun. That's very fun. Um, as you, as you've gotten to this point, do people subspecialize and go, I I am the master of this one specific genetic mutation, send it all to me. Or like if someone's diagnosed at that point, like there's no point in having a subspecialty that far down the line. Where where do you draw the line in, in subspecializing? I mean, I'm definitely, I have niche knowledge and, mm. and subspecialize. So I see all PD virtually all PD molecular, not heme. Um, so those tend to go to me versus the other four directors that are on service. So so there is definitely that subspecialized knowledge. And we have one person who is the authority on all things prostate cancer and um, really well known internationally and uh, tons of, of studies. Um, and so, yes, there's, there's definitely niche, but we also have to know uh, – all the background too, because we can't just say, well, I'm only going to sign out prostate and not deal with lung cancer or melanoma because that is far more cases and and more treatable options. Yeah. For the future non-molecular pathologists, the surgeons, the primary care docs, the ones who are sending you samples for diagnosis, what do you want them to know to help you do your job, to help them take care of their patients? As as you mentioned earlier with these cases that you've set up for those in training of like, well, that's not the information I was given. <laughs> um, we, we all know that the ideal is the referring provider or, or the, 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 the physician taking care of the patient gives you perfect history and and reason for why they're ordering the test but that, that's not always the case yeah it's not i think there's a, a couple of things to say and it's the timing of things it, uh, you know i'm reliant on anatomic pathology as well and so to the provider out there who's been waiting you know to get the patient in for a biopsy and the biopsy then has to go to anatomic path who processes it and then i have to order the material and the material has to come back and then i have to get it on the assay that is leaving on monday and if it misses monday it, it waits a week and then it takes another you know three days to to set up the assay and get it on a sequencer and then get data out of the pipeline that takes two days it's a really long process and so it can feel like i'm dragging my feet when really at every opportunity I'm pushing this forward. So, so understanding if you can get things to me like 
tell me on Wednesday that it's coming because Friday night means it's going to miss the Monday run and out a week or, or, or knowing the timing of that. Um, histories are helpful. I will say we actually have genetic counselors that go into the medical record to collect all that information because sometimes as I'm looking at your lung cancer, I figure out that you have a different germline variant that you probably need to know about and I'll contact your oncologist. Um, and even the path reports can be suspect. Somebody is outside that doesn't have a stain somewhere and they think something is one diagnosis. And then I find something else that says, well, actually, I think it, it might be this. We should correlate. I, there, there's so much interconnected um, knowledge between myself and the oncologist and the pathologist, the, the anatomic diagnostic pathologist that basically just email me, have a conversation. If something doesn't seem right, ask. I'd rather look again. Yeah. Is there anything you know now that you wish you knew before going into this? You know, I think I alluded to sunk cost fallacy. Um, understanding you have to pick what's right for you. You don't stay in something if you're not loving it. And um, and to make parents happy. I know my dad was is very proud, obviously. He still thinks I should be getting my law degree on top of it. But um, <laughs> it's a joke for him. He thought I should do genetic patent law. And I said I didn't agree with it. So I wasn't doing it. But Interesting. Do something you love, and if it's not for you, don't be afraid to 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 leave. You haven't lost anything. You'll only lose more time by staying in something that that maybe is not quite the right fit. And um, yeah, like I said, I'm really happy where I am. Good. I I love the sunk cost fallacy. I think about it all the time, and I I bring it up all the time with people because we as humans fall into that way too much. So that's good. I, oh, yeah, I like I spent that one. So many years doing this, I have to do this. Right? Exactly. I get to use all of the skills that I learned, and it, it's great. And I found my niche here. But yeah, it it was a scary thing to walk in and be like, "I'm sorry, I don't think this job is for me, and I'm going to resign, and I don't have another job." <laughs> yep, that's scary. What do you like the most about being a molecular pathologist? Oh, when I figure something out that you know has stumped other people, or it's off the beaten path, and I. I'm able to put together all the pieces of the puzzle. That's a really good feeling, especially when I figure out that there's something they can do for it, right? Oh my gosh, there's a drug for this. And, and you know, you can't resect this brain tumor, but there's a drug for this. And so you might be able to, to treat with that. Yeah. That's the best feeling ever. What do you like the least? Um, having to think about billing and insurance uh, <laughs> for things that, I think your standard of care, why do we not cover? Why can we not get covered? It's lung cancer. This is absolutely necessary. Just because I put it on a panel of, of three or 400 genes, I'm conserving tissue. I'm making it so that the patient doesn't have to get biopsied a second time. Why would we want to send them back to the OR for another anesthesia and, and, and biopsy if we can save them that? I, I think that can be, um, it can just be frustrating. No. How close are we? Uh, one of the questions I love asking is any major changes coming to the field, but but I want to dial in a little bit more specifically. How close are we to this kind of Theranos idea of give me a drop of blood? I, obviously, we need a tissue sample, whatever. Put it in a machine and it's going to run those 300 tests um, in 10, 15, 20 minutes. How, how close are we to finding the right reagents, speeding up reactions, doing all this so that we can get much, much faster with, with our diagnosis? I mean, there are already ultra, what they call ultra rapid PCR. And so you can do PCR instead of it taking like <laughs> however many hours. 
like 20, 30 minutes. I mean, it can be really, really fast. If your complex panels are, are going to be longer because you have to do all of these hybridizations and pull downs, but, but ultra rapid PCR does exist. Um, and taking blood and looking for tumor DNA, it's really interesting. It's called cell-free DNA or circulating tumor DNA, depending on what you're talking about. And we actually do testing for that. The context being, if I find BRAF B600E, so this mutation I always teach residents, if they don't know what to say, say that. <laughs> um, but it's in so many different cancers that finding that doesn't actually help you. And some of those cancers can be treated when they have that, and some of them can't. And so, um, you know, it's out there in, in all the little pieces and parts, but I don't, putting it together and, and a drop of blood is such a small amount of DNA. I don't think you're going to get that for, for a tumor for a while. No. But a tube. A tube of blood tube. can be a way to look at tumor as long as there's, and this is the unfortunate part, enough metastasis and tumor turnover that there's sufficient circulating yeah. DNA in the blood, right? So it has to be worse for you to work for me. Yeah. And we don't want that. No, we don't. Yeah. We'd rather find it earlier. Yeah. Makes sense. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a molecular pathologist? Yes. Definitely. This was, this was the right fit for me. Any last words of wisdom for the student out there who, who is now thinking, wow, molecular pathology sound, sounds kind of cool. What, what, do you, uh, what do you tell them to go do next? Um, you know, I think if there's any way, if they're still in college, take some genetics courses, see if they're really liking pathways and if they're thinking mutations, see if they can shadow somebody. Um, when they're in med school, they can also do rotations through clinical paths. And uh, away rotations that can give them more exposure to molecular because they're really not going to get that um, access. Otherwise, they have to be actively seeking it. And we do actually have rotations where I work and see so many um, med students coming through and then some of them actually end up liking it and coming back. All right. So there you have it. Again, Dr. Vera Paulson, molecular pathologist, talking all about her specialty I hope you were able to get some great information today about this specialty and hopefully sparked the interest in some of you to go check it out even more. If you want, go check out amp.org. That's amp.org for the Association for Molecular Pathology. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.